all major problems that we confront as a society are essentially political problems in the sense that we need some political response to help to address those problems. P politics is not the only thing that can address problems, but inevitably it does. So to me, I think it is normal and natural and acceptable even that we have a political debate about the way in which we should ha handle the coronavirus, the way in which it's being handled, how well is the federal government or other governments doing their job. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Today's episode, uh, we are going to talk all about how COVID-19 is impacting campaigns of all levels, from the presidential race uh, all the way down the ballot. And our guest to do that is John Sides, professor of political science at Vanderbilt University and uh, the publisher and one of the founders of The Monkey Cage, which some of our, our listeners may know. So uh, really excited to have John with us today to answer one central question. How do you run a campaign during an epidemic? Yeah, so we actually had the other side of that one question earlier when we talked about how do you run an election during an epidemic and now we're taking the next logical step and say how do you run a campaign that will result in an election during that same pandemic the elections regardless if they're by mail or or how they end up ultimately happening they are still going to happen and that means that you know candidates who are running for office need to figure out some way or ways to let people know that they're running and to connect with voters and to get their right. message out there. And those are some of the questions that I know John has been thinking through. Right, right. And of course, remember, there are multiple campaigns going out there. There's the presidential election, which many people have complained over the years goes on for way too long. Uh, I guess we're about to find out what happens when it's much shorter, since there's very little campaign going on right now. And then, of course, there are all of the uh, all of the all of the elections uh, below the level of the president that also will be taking place in November. But c can you imagine um, the conversations in every campaign office for every candidate all over the nation when suddenly it dawned on everyone virtually simultaneously that everything they had planned, everything they had uh, set up everything that they were expecting to do to run their campaign was basically out the window. And they had to come up with new ways of doing everything that a campaign normally does, but without, uh, with, in a completely new context and without any, virtually any face-to-face -face contact. Right. I mean, there are several problems here for campaigns, uh, especially the campaigns of challengers as opposed to incumbents. I mean, it's uh, on the one hand, you can't do any kind of rallies. You can't do any kind of retail politics at all. Uh, you also can't get any real attention through the media because every, all the media is obviously obsessed and focused on the uh, coronavirus. As is all, as, as are, is everybody. All people, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know that anybody really has the bandwidth for anything other than you know where we are right now with uh, with right. the ongoing crisis. Right. It was you know just a month ago, the campaign was all anybody was talking about, and now. Right. Well, 
nobody's talking about it. Yeah, well, there is there is only that one issue, right? The coronavirus. But that one issue does lend itself to a variety of different frames. What do you mean? Well, so, you know, one frame for which to approach this is the competence or not of the response by the by the incumbent administration. Uh, another is the one that you're hearing from uh, many from Bernie Sanders and many of his supporters in that it does put the focus on things like a universal health care system. I see. You know, yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, but it's still going to be a much different debate set of issues than it would have been before. And really, you know, who knows what it's going to be like in November, but I wonder if anything is going to be able to overwhelm or or overcome people's just singular focus on what's happened, whose fault is it, and have they done an acceptable job in responding to it? Well, I guess so. But I, I also think that it's entirely changed the economic environment in which this campaign will be occurring. I mean, it it is not impossible that this campaign will be occurring with an unemployment rate in double digits. Don't you think that's possible? Well, you know, that is <laughs> that is not unusual in, in, in democracies for people to have a not completely thoughtful and rational response to how uh, the current state of affairs affects them personally. And, and irrespective of whether or not it's anybody, you know, you could reasonably attach blame, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't think anybody thinks the, uh, the coronavirus is Donald Trump's fault. I mean, um, Biden has said repeatedly, it's not. But you've also heard um, a lot of people just say that it's it's his responsibility that we're in the condition we're in. But instead, the president has made it clear that he wants this to be all about himself. He is out there for up to an hour and a half or two hours every single day, making sure that almost every question is addressed by him. He wants this well, to be about himself. He- John is is a good person to bring in to say what happens. How do you how do you do this if you're a challenger? And and what is this going to what impact is this going to have on just the realities of campaigning and the realities of a of a national election uh in the midst of all this. Yeah. We've set the stage here for some of the issues at play when it comes to how campaigns are operating in the midst of the coronavirus. So let's go now to my interview with John Sides. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with John Sides. John, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So uh, we are going to talk today all about the impact of COVID-19 on campaigns of various levels up and down the ballot. We did an episode uh, of our show recently that talked about kind of the the growing pivot to voting by mail and voting at home and, you know, some of what that might look like. But I think the other end of that is just actually how the the candidates and the voters are behaving, what factors are now going to influence their decision, uh, you know, how how campaigns are are going to to run in this virtual environment that we now find ourselves in. Um, so let's let's start maybe with the the candidate piece of that. I mean, what what are you seeing in terms of, of the ways in which candidates are, are changing their approach, um, how they fundraise, how they connect with voters during this time when we seem to be living our lives pretty much entirely online? 
well, they're going to have difficulty connecting with voters. Um, the means that they can do so have become more limited. For a presidential candidate that you know doesn't necessarily have a lot of resource constraints compared to what many local candidates have, you know, it means broadcasting from your basement. It means not having the events that you would normally have, not generating the local news coverage or even national news coverage you would get from from having these events. Um, Trump can't have rallies. Biden and Sanders can't have rallies. They can't talk to voters. They can't press the flesh. I mean, for, so for, I think that's it, it probably means that for a candidate, you know, you can you can basically communicate with voters through paid advertising if you can afford to buy it. You can communicate with voters virtually if you can convince them to show up and engage with you in whatever format you've created. Um, you can try to communicate with them, you know, have your, your, your campaign communicate with voters via phone or by mail. But again, those are limited relative to the range of tactics that candidates might want to employ, such as communication in person. Do we know yet at all, I mean, how how effective, how well received some of these virtual town halls and, and other kind of new approaches are so far? I, mean, I, I know it's I, only I been a couple the, of weeks. Well, I don't, we don't know a lot yet. I mean, I think the biggest challenge is just generating an audience and convincing, you know, for the, for a presidential candidate, you know, your, your, your best hope is that the, the, the nature of the event is compelling enough that it's covered on, on television, covered on the news. Uh, written about by journalists. Um, so you never assume, of course, that many people want to tune in or will tune in to the event in real time, but you're hoping for that second stage of publicity. Um, and I think now, I mean, part of what's challenging about that is just, all of that is crowded out by coronavirus news, um, which takes precedent for obvious reasons. So it's just difficult to break through. Trump has the advantage of at least being able to break through because he's the incumbent president and he has to be covered. Um, and even if he weren't holding news conferences and talking directly to the public, you know, his name will be in the news no matter what. Um, but for the challenger, that takes it takes more work. And I think that's why you've seen a lot of these where's Joe Biden type stories, which is kind of a, a dumb story in many ways, because, you know, Joe Biden's doing what Joe Biden should be doing, though, not leaving his house, um, communicating as best he can. So it's not as if he's given up his campaign or, or disappeared. It's just that, you know, he's facing a set of constraints that are difficult to overcome. Let's talk about the the down ballot races. I, I mean, I think that the, you know, national candidates will continue, as you said, to, to get attention from TV and, and from from reporters writing about their various virtual events that they have. But I think local candidates, it seems to me, might get hit in, in two ways. One, I mean, you know, local media is also dominated by coronavirus news. And, and also I'm seeing increasingly that, you know, as what was already kind of a troubling landscape for local media in terms of, of advertising and, and profits and those things is even being further decimated now because you know advertisers are not advertising as much with with the economy being what it is so there's just fewer even fewer local media resources than there had been previously so if if you were advising a, a local candidate whether it's someone running for for a house seat or even like a, a, a local city level race or, or a, a state government type of position how can they go about getting attention and, and reaching voters during this time I think the major way they can do it is by first, if you've got the money, you can try to do it with some degree of, of direct mail. Perhaps you can augment that with phone calls, right? So you basically take the network of people that you have that are your supporters and then get them calling. 
call through their networks, try to get them um, reaching out to friends and family. You're calling, reaching out to, to friends and family and people in your extended network and, you know, trying to spread sort of knowledge about your campaign and your ideas that way. But again, it's, it's not that's not really a mass medium. You know, that's, that's more targeted uh, and narrower. So that's, you know, but that would be the, the sort of simple ways you could do that. Um, beyond that, it's challenging if the, if the local news media is, is, is suffering economically, if the coverage that they are producing is largely focused on the coronavirus, um, if it's difficult to hold events um, that, are, that would actually put your face in, uh, in front of voters. You know, there's not a lot of options open to you. And, and, and in that kind of environment, I mean, it's, it's, it's local candidates that have uh, relatively little funding that uh, suffer the most. It's also the candidates that are, you know, the challengers, the lesser known candidates that, you know, they, they really need that, that coverage so that they can challenge the incumbent who typically has more money, more name recognition, um, generally speaking, more resources to, to spend or bring to bear on the campaign. So I think a lot of the way that this is changing campaigns is the, the virus is, is hurting local candidates um, more so than maybe presidential candidates, but it's also really probably disadvantaging the underdogs and the challengers more than the incumbents. Yeah. And so can you just talk a little bit more about what that looks like? I, I mean, to, to what extent is, d- does the incumbent have have an advantage here or is that still to be determined? I, I mean, could it you know, end up being a, a detriment to the incumbent in the end, depending on how the virus ends up ends up playing out? I mean, if if the virus is detrimental to incumbents, it will it will not be to incumbents broadly. It'll be to incumbents of one party, much the same way that we observe, for example, when you know the economy goes into recession and the party that's in power in the White House is the party that suffers. Or we have a midterm election and it's the party that's out of power that doesn't control the White House that benefits, as happened in 2018. So I think you know if you're a Republican. You know, one of the things that you're trying to figure out is, you know, can Trump's approval rating thus far has not taken a major nosedive. And in fact, it's had a little bump um, in the opposite direction. Can that approval rating remain stable if the virus and the economic contraction eventually does take a toll on Trump's approval rating? Then absolutely it hurts your ability as a Republican candidate to make the case. Um, because we live in an era in which a lot of down battle elections are very nationalized. Instead of local factors being the main thing that, that voters think about when they go to, to the ballot, ballot box, they're thinking about you know, national politics. So I think that's how the incumbents themselves might suffer. But you know, if that's just one party. And I think more generally, as you no doubt can, can see, you know, incumbents tend to win election far more often than they lose. Um, even with some headwinds, sometimes you know the the vast majority of incumbents and in, even the disadvantaged party win. So this is why, again, I think you know they're better positioned to withstand the disruptions of the virus than than a challenger who's really still trying to get his or her name out there um, and make the case for for why they should take over and the incumbent should be unseated. What guidance are the are the parties giving here? I mean, as you said, there's there's kind of these efforts to have this this unified front about how kind of 
all in relation to how how the Trump administration is is handling the crisis. But also, you as you also just said, you know, we see these these governors and others kind of trying to stake their own position. So if you're the the Republican or the the Democratic Party right now, how are you trying to strike that balance between having a unified party? type of of message and 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 unified type of, of party approach while also kind of allowing people maybe the the freedom or you know whatever they they might need to to have an appropriate response for their particular area well i think from the from the democratic's point of democratic party's point of view you know it's easy to be united against trump and that's been you know basically a central feature of the party since trump's election um and i think you know on a day by day basis as the crisis unfolds, as there are you know numerous stories in the media and elsewhere portraying the sort of chaos and the uh, lack of coordination within the White House, it's you know it's easy to sustain that message. It's not necessarily as clear that that's there's a unified sense that among Democrats when they're thinking about other Republican office holders. Um, you know there was a story about Republican Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, who's been quite out front. Challenging the president, you know, asking for resources, trying to lead, and you know, the story quoted, you know, Democratic office holders and at the local level who were like, "Yeah, it's hard for me to critique Hogan. You know, he's doing a good job." I'm, and I'm a, I'm a Democrat. I'm still saying this about Hogan. So I think, you know, at the local level, it's it's less clear. It depends a little bit on what the individual Republican office holders have done. Um, for Republicans, I think it's a it's a it's a challenge. I think it's a challenge in, in, in two respects. I mean, one is that I think if you're thinking about governors or other local office holders, of course, right, there's party pressure to sort of stick with the president, go with the president's ideas. You know, there, there's always a fear that, you know, if, you turn, if you're perceived as turning on the president, then the president's or his allies will, you know, raise a fuss and you're going to face a backlash from elements of the party that are loyal to the president that perceive you as insufficiently loyal. On the other hand, if you think about from the incumbent's perspective, you know, if you're perceived as mismanaging the crisis, if you're perceived as not doing enough, then perhaps you're going to suffer. In that sense, maybe you need to break with the president if you, don't, if you don't like the president's approach. You need to chart your own course. And so that's just where Hogan is an example. Mike DeWine in, in Ohio is an example. You know, they've clearly tried to do something different. And again, I think that reflects their approach to governing their contact with the public health experts in their states. You know, there's a sincere policy motivation for doing it this way. It's not just a political strategy, but it is a political strategy. And perhaps for them, they're betting on the fact that they can get some political benefit from leading effectively in this crisis, even if it means breaking with the president. Yeah. And, and to that point, I mean, there, there's been lots of talk since 2016 about how the Republican Party has been remade in Donald Trump's image and, and his ideologies and these sorts of things. Do you think that people like Hogan and, and DeWine and, and perhaps others might be fuel to to break some of that, to, to maybe, uh, you know, go back to the the pre-Trump era of, of the uh, Republican Party or maybe have something else that stands up today in, in contrast to, to what he has kind of made the, the party into over the past couple of years? I think that what's different about this moment is that the the virus gives us an extraordinarily un, you know unorthodox political moment. And as such, some of the, the earlier debates and conversations about 
you know, how much is Trump changing the party? How much is the party changing Trump? How much do elected Republican office holders have to mimic Trump or be loyal to Trump or take the same positions as Trump? You know, all of that's kind of been thrown to the side because now the question is essentially, how are we going to defeat this virus? How are we going to help the economy recover? And this is really uh, not as much about political ideology or political positions as much as it is about competence and the ability of the federal government to mount an effective response and the ability of state and local governments to, to augment that response. And, now, and as such, I think it's, it's put Trump in a very different position than he's used to being in. And it's probably given Republican office holders um, some leeway to chart a different course because now you know, we're not dealing with the same old issues of immigration or taxes or health care or what have you, but we're dealing with like what could be potentially, you know, a, an, an event as singular as, as a world war or as, as a economic depression. So perhaps for that reason, you've seen some Republican office holders basically strike out on their own and do it differently than, than the way that the Trump administration has done. And and what about on the on the the Democratic side? Where do you think that we're likely to see Democratic voters this fall? Are they still kind of maybe going to, or at least some part of them, em- embrace that that more progressive message? Or do you think that the the Democratic Party might kind of coalesce a little bit more than it has thus far? There are aspects of this crisis that play very well in, with the Democrats' overall thinking that the government has a productive role to play. And, and society, including healthcare, including the economy, et cetera. Where I think, you know, if there's a challenge to that viewpoint, um, again, it comes not so much from an ideological point of view as it comes from a competence point of view. Some of what's happened in terms of the government's mismanagement of the crisis has to do with things that have happened um, among, you know, career civil servants at the CDC and the FDA. Their decision-making, you know, is questionable. It's not, you know, Donald Trump himself did not build a CDC testing kit that didn't work when it was first rolled out to the states. Um, so some of those delays, some of that, those mistakes, maybe cast some doubt on the government's ability to to respond effectively. So the guess the question for Democrats is overall, I think people are very supportive of the federal government's interventions to support the economy and try to to take steps that will change the course of the virus. On the other hand, you know, there are going to be some lingering questions about the extent to which the government's mishandling of it reflects not just Trump, but it reflects, you know, sort of in the inherent limitations of government. So, you know, that debate may not really happen until after the virus is, is largely run its course. But I think for the moment, the balance of that, I think, means that the Democrats can basically stay um, united around their general policy goals, and of course, can stay even more united around their opposition to the president. Um, the long-term question will will probably take several years to play out. To what extent should we even be talking about politics right now and, and campaigns? I mean, I, I guess you can make the argument in some respects that that everything is is political and and see it through that lens. But there's also, you know people dying all across the country. And, and this, this maybe also uh, harkens back to something you were saying earlier about um, that, that kind of grassroots outreach that that's really the only way to, to reach people right now. I mean, do you get the sense that, that people would be receptive to, to those, those types of messages? And, and if so, you know, what, what should that, that outreach look like? I mean, I think the, 
part of the reason why we have to talk politics is because we're having an election and the election is scheduled to happen in November under federal law. And it's not going to be something we can easily change. You know, states can reschedule their primaries and do all kinds of things, as you've seen. But I mean, we can't really easily move the general election. Now, we may not be ready for it in a variety of ways, but nevertheless, you know, we're in the middle of a presidential campaign. So for that reason, I think that it's inevitable we're going to talk politics. And then there's a the question about, well, should we talk politics as it relates to the coronavirus? You know, is that, quote unquote, politicizing the coronavirus? And I, I guess I've never been really persuaded by that point of view. I mean, I think that all major problems that we confront as a society are essentially political problems in the sense that we need some political response to help to address those problems. Po- politics is not the only thing that can address problems, but inevitably it, it does. So to me, I think it is normal and natural and acceptable even that we have a political debate about the way in which we should ha- handle the coronavirus, the way in which it's being handled, how well is the federal government or other governments doing their job. And in fact, I th- actually think that the virus also opens a different kind of political strategy in addition. And I think it's one that you know Biden has long himself been articulating or testing out in his campaign. And it's this message of sort of unity, you know, that what we can do in a time of crisis or what we should do as a nation generally is try to find ways to come together, accomplish things that we need to accomplish. And, you know, he contrasts that with what he, he argues is Trump's, you know, divisiveness and, and harshness. I don't, I'm not overly optimistic that, that me- a message of unity is, is going to work. Or that Americans will, you know, really feel unified or will overcome partisan differences and divisions. But, but nevertheless, I mean, I think it's just, it's another dimension by which we could imagine politics continuing to engage with the crisis that we're facing. Yeah. So for that reason, I would say, like, you know, you would expect to see that more politicization of, of the epidemic. And I, and I think it was, it's hard to imagine that not culminating in a... An, an election on which you know voters are going to be making decisions in part based on politicians' responses to the crisis. And that's what we should want. Right? I mean, we should want elections to offer a mechanism by which voters can hold politicians accountable for their, for their actions. And it seems hard to imagine that we shouldn't have a debate about politicians' actions on the most important issue of the day before we vote in right. November. Uh, um, so why do you say you're not overly optimistic that this, this message of, of unity will end up panning out in the end? Well, I think a little bit depends on what we are unifying around. I mean, I, I, you can certainly look at polling data that shows that large majorities of both Democrats and Republicans believe that we should be doing things and report that they're doing things like social distancing. And there are not necessarily zero gaps between Democrats and Republicans, but still, like whatever gap exists, it's relatively modest, large majorities of both doing these things. That's good. I mean, that's what we need to stop the the spread of the virus. Where I think the politics become more intractable is, you know, holding politicians accountable. You know, do we expect Democrats and Republicans or do we expect a substantial number of Republicans to turn on the president and and, and sort of agree with Joe Biden or the Democrats that, that Trump's mishandled this and Trump's approach to governing is is the wrong approach that we need in a crisis? I mean, it seems unlikely that you're going to see mass defections from Trump. Uh, now, even a little bit of defection, you know, could be consequential for who wins the election. But nevertheless, 
I don't think that that adds up to anything that looks like national unity. It's worth just like stepping back uh-huh. and realizing that we don't, if we're in a very unusual moment, you know, it, it really should make us less confident in playing out its political consequences. How so? You know, something along. Well, to me, we're going to look at at economic numbers in the first and second and maybe third and fourth quarters of, of 2020 that are extraordinarily bad, um, worse than any economic number that we've seen since the Great Depression, or at least that's what forecasts suggest. That's just an outlier relative to the types of economic numbers that we've seen and and used to try to gauge things like, you know, how the public holds incumbent presidents accountable, either in their approval rating or when it comes time for re-election. So I, I think we're we're challenged in part because this is such a black swan type event that we don't know exactly how to think about its consequences and we can't say things with a great deal of confidence. And we're also seeing, and I think a, a, a test that we haven't haven't yet seen, both for Obama and Trump, which is what happens when an economic recession occurs on their watch. You know, they didn't inherit it like Obama did, but it occurs on their watch. And you know, we've had this long economic expansion, and during that time, you know, it's been a very commonplace observation that we live in an era of political polarization, and Democrats and Republicans have strikingly different views of the president, and that's difficult to change. And as such, you know, they really haven't given the president as much credit for the economic expansion that we've experienced, either Obama or Trump, than would have been true in the past. But we never had an economic contraction to see if they punished the president the way that voters have punished the president in the past. So now we're going to have that, but it's such an unusual circumstance because the contraction is so large because it's brought about by the ex- this kind of external event. It's not nor- a normal economic recession by any stretch. So for those reasons, it's a little hard to know exactly what this is going to mean, both for Trump and for Biden or for anybody running for office in 2020. So I'm just conscious that, you know, there's value, you know, it's, it's valuable to sort of think through the implications of the current moment for politics on different dimensions. But in many ways, I think having an even higher degree of uncertainty about the consequences is is a valuable posture for social scientists and political commentators right now. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. And I think that in these times of crisis, like on the one hand, all we want to do is like try to find meaning or make sense of of something that's new and and makes us feel anxious and frustrated and angry and all these things. But yeah, I think that point about the kind of black swan nature of this is is worth keeping in mind for sure. Yeah, and, and and by the same token, I think that it's difficult to make a, a confident forecast about the, the even the medium term consequences of the virus for for our politics and and for economy, other dimensions of our public life. You know, I, I think our tendency uh, as observers and and participants, you know, is to assume that events that happen now are, are, are important and will be continued to be important. We would probably overestimate the consequences of what happens now for the future. Like everything that happens now seems to be the most important thing that's ever happened. So, I mean, part of me wants to, to, to remember that and, and not to be so confident that everything's going to change in the aftermath of the coronavirus. But on the other hand, you know, it, it's, it, there are certainly very plausible cases to make for certain kinds of large-scale change. You know, a lingering economic consequence, for example, and and if the virus plays a role in Trump's defeat, let's say, then you know, having a Democrat in the White House will make a big difference in policy and and, and politics for the next several years, and that could be itself pretty consequential. 
So, you know, I vacillate some days between thinking it matters a lot and, and then not being confident in terms of how much it will matter. Um, so again, this is just more reason for us to think to be to be cautious in making confident predictions here as we sit in the in the early part of April. Yeah, that's that's great. Maybe we'll we'll have you back on the show uh, after November third to see how it all ended up playing out and how how much of a role the the virus ended up playing in the end. That'd be um, great. Great. Well, John, uh, thank you so much for all the the work that you're doing in this area, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. History may be written by the winners, but presidential politics is often shaped by the losers. I'm Connor Powell, host of a new series called Long Shots that explores eight losing presidential bids that shaped America's political ambitions for generations to come. You want to know who gave Trump the idea for a border wall? Have you heard about the free love feminists who ran for president in 72, 1872? Do you know about the rainbow coalition that made today's Democratic Party? Long Shots explores how democracy really works. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Well, Jenna, thanks. That was a that was an interesting interview. Uh, I wanted to pick up on two points that John made, uh, Chris. One, one had to do with the uh, the question of unity, whether or not the country is unified here, as unified as it could be, and the other had to do with. Uh, somehow trying to keep politics out of our discussions of the coronavirus. Well, those are kind of related in a way, aren't they, right? I mean, the argument is that you have to keep politics out of it in order for it to be unified or, I mean, maybe unifiable. That's the argument, or that's certainly the argument that you're going to hear from anybody who's uh, who's it's in their interest for it not to become political, right? Um, You know, this is not a benign question. But but it is interesting to me how, I mean, what John said was that, you know, this is typically um, a moment in in our nation's history when we see unity. Right. And he is skeptical that we're going to see it this time. Yes. And and certainly we haven't seen it yet in the data. Uh, And by that, I mean... Often in a moment of great national crisis, we see a great deal of support uh, behind the president, and it's often reflected in their approval scores, which will raise significantly among members both of his of his or her own party and the other party. But we're not seeing that. Well, I have another uh, data point for you. Um, yeah. I remember when we were talking about the impeachment. And I mentioned that I showed my family the graph of, you know, support for impeachment among all Americans, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and how it was four straight lines. And I saw a graph um, recently that asked that that broke down uh, people according to those same four groups, uh, uh, asking if you approved of the president's handling of the coronavirus, and it was almost identical. There may be some differences in numbers, but what was striking to me was how straight these lines were. Now, it may be that you're starting to see some of that change. And as things go forward, they could change some more. But it just bespeaks the degree to which, A, there is no getting outside of this partisanization of American life and just how 
rigid everybody is in their identity. Well, you know, I have to, I'm not sure I completely agree with that. We've seen many governors who have been able to approach this in a very nonpartisan kind of manner. That's true. Well, I I I guess we we have plenty of time to wait and see. Well, I was struck. I mean, you know, uh, John is a very good political scientist. And as a social scientist, he will only go so far as the data allows him to go. So there was all kinds of mites and maybe and we don't knows in, well, in that interview. And I yeah. think it was responsibly so. Right. We yeah. just don't know. Yeah. There, this is this is a what do you call it? A black swan. Right. For yes. all of us. Well, that's a phrase that he used. And yeah. absolutely. And, yeah. and so I think. That is part of the reason why people feel so um, all at sea. It's part of why campaigns don't know exactly how to respond, but it's also why we are all so compulsively watching the news because nobody knows what's going on. And that includes scientists. When I ask my wife, um, why why is it that some people have a sickness level that they didn't even know they had it and other people die? And she just looked at me, shook her head and said, nobody knows. I mean, yeah. there is a lot that is just unknown right now. And it, 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 that's a hard place to try to run a campaign. <laughs> yes. And a lot we still don't know about how this both will affect our democracy and how our democracy is going to shape our response to it. I, I suspect we're going to be returning to this in uh, many podcasts. Hopefully it's useful to our listeners. It's, it's some sad level, absolutely fascinating. And hopefully we can bring some light to what's going on. Well, good note. Good note to end on. So thank you, Jennifer. Good interview today with uh, John Sides. And John, thank you for joining us. Uh, Yeah. Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Episodes are engineered by Andy Grant and Craig Johnson, edited by Chris Kugler, Jen Bortz, and Mark Stitzer, and reviewed by Emily Reddy. Our interns this semester are Nicole Grayson and Stephanie Crane, two seniors in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts all about civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and access deep dive playlists on topics like gerrymandering and money in politics that are curated from across the network. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.